Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Matthew, chapter 15, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from uh, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, two scenes from the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're going to spend the vast majority of the time on the first one, and I will hopefully show you how the second one relates to the first one, but we'll read from Matthew, chapter 15, st- <coughs> starting in verse 21. This is what the Holy Scripture says. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she's agreeing with him. Yes, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountain and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called to his disciples to him, called his disciples to him, and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. This is probably an overused phrase. I probably use it too much when we are walking, as we we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, but here it's really true. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel. It's probably not hard to tell why this is a challenging section of Scripture, Um, What do you think about Jesus' response to this hurting woman? At first, he ignores her, and Matthew emphasizes that by saying, Jesus didn't answer her one word. Then he gives this sentence that says, I was not sent for people like you. And then he uses a parable that compares her to a dog. This is a challenging passage. You don't have to read very much in, uh, about this to find out that this is a passage where uh, for the last 20 or 30 years or so, Jesus has been accused of being a racist. Uh, 
Brandon Robertson is a young pastor who lives in the Chicago area, and a few weeks ago, he released a video on TikTok and, uh, where he spoke about Jesus being a racist in this passage. By calling her a dog, he's using a racially ch- uh, charged uh, slur. Then she responded, she spoke truth to power, and Jesus, being uh, spoken to this way, relents and repents of his racist attitudes and heals her daughter. Uh, the, the argument goes, Jesus absorbed the racially superior attitudes of the Jews of ancient Palestine. He picked those up from his culture, and that's the way he spoke here in this passage. Jesus, the racist, in Matthew chapter 15. Now, the next step in that argument, you ready for the next step? You probably can see it. You can see it coming a mile away. Uh, Just like Jesus is influenced by his culture and his racial attitudes, so the rest of the Bible and subsequently Christianity has been affected by our culture and our views of homosexuality. Jesus changed his mind about race, and we need to change our minds, our views about LGBT issues too. Now we need to think carefully about this, uh, and, and we're going to. I have two thoughts even just to begin though. If this puzzling passage, this interaction with this woman, if this puzzling passage is enough for you to overthrow everything else that the Bible says about men, women, marriage, and ethnicity, you might be on very thin ice. The other thing I think about as I read this passage is that if if it becomes necessary in order for you to elevate your position, your view, if it's necessary for you to elevate your view, if you have to denigrate Jesus to do it, you're probably in worse danger than skating on thin ice. Well, what is going on in this section of Scripture? Uh, There's two themes that I want to trace out to you in in this passage, and we're going to go back and forth a little bit between them. One of the themes is the mission of Jesus. Matthew writes about this a lot. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, so he's going to talk to us here about what Jesus came to do and the implications of that for following him. Shows up all the time in Matthew. Secondly, though, we're going to talk about the nature of faith. Here is a hurting woman with a suffering daughter. And this is a very tender-hearted telling of her story, this woman who comes to Jesus desperate for help. She cries out and cries out. What's interesting is that there seems to be this conflict between these two themes, between what Jesus came to do and between this woman and her need. Jesus says, because of my mission, it's impossible for me to help her, help you. Does that sound like Jesus to you? that he would say something like that? Well, let's pick this up. Let's take the, the theme that is uh, connected to the rest of Matthew first. Let's talk about the mission of Jesus. And verse 24 tells us, Jesus tells us what he came to do. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, this conversation that happens, let's, let's think about the setting for just a minute. It takes place Verse 21 tells us in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew doesn't mention the specific location. I think that's important. I'll tell you why in a little bit. But uh, he goes to the northwest from Galilee. Tyre is a city on the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 25 miles from Galilee. Uh, And Sidon is another city further up the coast, about 50 miles from uh, Galilee. 
And Jesus has gone to that region. Why? Um, Matthew doesn't tell us in specific. I, I can think of a few things. Um, remember in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, when Jesus is in conflict with, one, with the Pharisees or uh, some of the other religious leaders in Palestine, when there's a conflict, Jesus often withdraws. Until that moment that he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified, he withdraws from conflict. He lowers the temperature by moving. And here, he's just had a conflict in Matthew 15 with the, the Pharisees, and it seems like he's just withdrawing. It's also possible, we're going to learn he does this in Matthew chapter 16, that he withdraws from the area so that he can have some private time of training with his disciples. So maybe he's going to do some private teaching to his disciples. That's possible. Mark chapter 7 is the parallel passage of this, and it says that Jesus went to this region to get some rest, which is also possible. While he's on this teaching, training, withdrawing from conflict sabbatical, a Canaanite woman approaches him. We'll talk about her more in just a minute, but even this title that's given her, this adjective, she is a Canaanite woman, should raise some red flags. What do you know in the Bible about the Canaanites? It's an Old Testament term, the Canaanites. The Canaanites are an ancient people. The Canaanites lived in Palestine, in the promised land. They were there when God promised Abraham that land. And they were there after Moses led the people, Israelites, up out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. They had to go in and conquer the promised land. And the people who were living there who had to be conquered were the Canaanites. They were a technologically advanced civilization, but they were wicked, very wicked. And part of the reason that God sent the Israelites into the promised land was to punish them for their wickedness. He had given them 400 years to repent, and they did not repent. And so Moses, uh, 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 Moses led the people to the land, and under Joshua, they went into the land, and they were supposed to destroy the land, destroy the people there, the Canaanites. They were supposed to wipe them from the map have nothing to do with them. Don't marry them. Don't do business with them. Destroy them. And, and, and a woman who is a descendant of those people comes to Jesus for help. And he uses two images, two images to respond to them. First, he speaks about, we already talked about this, lost sheep. Lost sheep. I was sent, verse 24, only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it's interesting. Does... The woman hear what Jesus says, hear this sentence. I'm not sure she does. Think about how we might stage this. The text says that she's crying out to Jesus and she's raising her voice, which seems to imply that maybe she's a little distance away from him. Maybe she can't quite get close to him yet because of the crowds, but she's crying, help me, help me. Lord, have mercy. On so she, she's far. And the disciples, this is kind of annoying to them. So they said to Jesus, they're closer, they come near to Jesus and say, now there's a debate about this. They say, send her away. Does this mean answer her problem, fix her daughter, heal her daughter, so she'll leave because she's so loud? Or are the disciples saying, regardless of what Jesus does, Lord, get rid of her, send her away. Knowing what you know about the disciples, which do you think is most likely? Do they want Jesus to heal her and send her, heal her daughter and send her away? Or do they want Jesus just to send her away? Well, you might be surprised because I think Jesus' answer makes the most sense if, he, if the disciples said to, to him, heal her and send her away. Jesus says, I can't. 
Well, that's what he said. He says, that's not what I was sent to do. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Notice it's important as we think about this, as Jesus moving through the gospel, that Jesus has a sense of mission. He has been sent by God. Jesus is not living at the whim of circumstances. He's not making his plans up as he goes along. He has been sent by God very clearly, and he's been sent to whom? The lost sheep of Israel. Here's a reminder in Matthew that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He came in fulfillment of the promises made to the Jews of the Old Testament, the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He came for that nation, to that people, the people who are the subject and the focus of the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus came for them. He's their Messiah, and she's not a a, a descendant of Abraham. She's a Canaanite. Look how the Apostle Paul writes about the Jews in Romans 9.4. Romans 9.4 says... Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever praised, amen. Jesus came for them. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, there's compassion in this passage. He says, I came for the lost sheep. I'm not sure, having read the Old Testament, that the word lost is the primary adjective that would come to my mind when I'm describing the people of Israel. Wandering, rebellious, stubborn, obstinate. I might use those adjectives. But Jesus has come to rescue lost sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. And if you're not a descendant of Abraham, you have no claim on him. The promises weren't made to you. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's not your Messiah if you're not a descendant of Abraham. Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister of Canada. I've told you before about how I like to go to Niagara Falls. I grew up near Niagara Falls. I've been to Niagara Falls hundreds of times. And you should go. It's beautiful. And if you want to see it, one beautiful way to see it is to go across the border to Canada and look at the falls from the Canadian side. Uh, Right now, the border is closed because of COVID. But let's say that I really, really want to go see Niagara Falls, and I sit down and I write a letter to Justin Trudeau. Dear Prime Minister Trudeau, please, please, please open the border so I can come in and look at Niagara Falls. Does Justin Trudeau have any obligation to me to answer or to respond to my request? No, because I'm not Canadian. He's not my Prime Minister. Larry Hogan is the governor of Maryland. It's so sad. I was putting these pictures together, and to my great sorrow, I look a lot more like Larry Hogan than Justin Trudeau. (laughs) It's just sad. Just sad. Anyway, uh, let's say Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, um, I I like some of his policies. I don't like some of his policies. I'm going to write him a letter and tell him all the things that he's done that I like and that I don't like. Um, Will Larry Hogan, does Larry Hogan need to pay attention to my letter? No, because I'm not a citizen of Maryland. I am a citizen of the far superior state of Pennsylvania. He's not my governor. I have no obligation to him. He has no obligation to me. If you're not a descendant of Abraham, Jesus is not your Messiah. You have no claim on him. I wonder, I wonder if, if this woman knows this because she, she says, 
Lord, son of David. That's a very Jewish Messiah phrase. That's how they would identify the Messiah as the son of David. You wonder if she's acknowledging even right up front, I know I'm not in the family, but help me, please. Uh, So two images. He uses the image of lost sheep. I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then he uses the image of children at the table. Verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The descendants of Abraham are children at the table and everybody else are dogs. This is not primarily about race, although that charge has been made. This is not primarily about race. It's about covenant. There are Jews, it is true that there are Jews in Jesus' day who would give thanks to God that they were not a dog like a Gentile. That was a righteous, pious way for a Jewish man to pray uh, back in Jesus' day. Uh, Some people have tried to, he doesn't call her a dog in this passage, but he uses a parable in which that's what she is. She's represented in the parable by a dog. And it's a harsh comment. Some people have tried to soften what Jesus has said by talking about his tone or maybe his facial expression, that he's he's speaking expectantly, uh, 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 tongue-in-cheek to her, and she should know. Or they, they point out the fact that Jesus uses the word for puppy here. He's talking about a sweet little puppy house pet and not a wild pack animal like most dogs were in Jesus' day. There's efforts that are made to try to soften this Jesus is speaking bluntly here, bluntly to her. Just as an aside, don't take that as permission to speak bluntly. Jesus did this so I can. I trust Jesus with these harsh words in his mouth. I don't trust me with harsh words like this in my mouth. I think you shouldn't trust yourself with harsh words like this in your mouth either. He's speaking bluntly. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Look what he says about the Gentiles there. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, who are not Jews, Canaanite women by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by, not, uh, done in the body by human hands. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Jesus is not your Messiah. You have no claim on him. You are not part of the flock. You don't have a seat at the table. Matthew wants you to feel the weight of this as you read this passage. And I hope to show you why he wants you to feel that weight in a few minutes. Uh, several years ago, uh, three or four years ago, Legan Duncan preached a sermon on the parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 7. And he told about an experience that one of his friends, who's an Episcopalian priest in the United States, had. The Episcopalians in the United States are a member of the worldwide body of Anglicans. And in general, the trajectory of those who are part of the Anglican fellowship has been to move away from fidelity to the scriptures. Uh, and, uh, but, but Legan Duncan's Episcopalian friend is a, a faithful follower of Jesus and uh, opposes in every way possible this drift of his family, his church family. 
But it got to the point where he decided in their church government that he needed a bishop over him who shared his convictions about the Bible. The bishop that he had in the United States did not. So he got the idea of of forming a group of churches that would seek bishop-type leadership elsewhere, and he went to Africa to find a faithful Anglican bishop who would oversee his church here in the United States. It's interesting, you'll watch it. The churches will meet together this summer. These uh, church meetings happen. The mainline churches in the United States, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, Anglicans, others that are struggling so with their fidelity to the Bible, it's been the African pastors who have been holding the line. Give thanks to God for faithful African Methodists and Episcopalians. So, well, this Episcopalian who is from the United States went with a group over to Rwanda uh, to seek uh, a bishop-type leadership from the Archbishop of Rwanda. When they showed up for their meeting, the Archbishop did not meet with them himself. Instead, he sent out one of his assistants. And the assistant took this group of American Episcopalians on a tour around Rwanda, and they went to all of the places in Rwanda that had been the focus of the genocide, the Rwandan genocide, so many years ago. They went to these places that were massacre sites. Two or three days, they toured them, and then went back to the archbishop's office to meet with him. They came in and sat down, and the archbishop said, I hope you have uh, learned from the tour of our country that you have been on. Yes, When the genocide started, he said, we reached out to the United Nations and we begged the United Nations to come and intervene and no help came. And then we reached out to the government of the United States, your government, for help. And we asked them, please come and help. And the United States did not come. No help came. And then we reached out to the churches in the United States, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we begged for help. And no help came. And now here you are in my office asking me for help. I have no claim. I have no right to ask you for help. I have no claim to ask. I have no leg to stand on in your presence. The archbishop said, you did not help me, but I will help you. This woman has no claim. If you're not a descendant of Abraham, you have no claim on Jesus. It's true. The Bible tells us that our condition before God, all of us, regardless of our uh, uh, ethnicity, of our race, of our gender, all of us stand before God as objects of his wrath. We are born sinners and we live as sinners in rebellion against God and we are just objects of his wrath He has sent a Messiah, but if you're not a descendant of Abraham, you have no claim on him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's change topics for just a minute and talk about this dear woman and the nature of her faith. I want you to to see some, some characteristics of her faith worthy of emulation, I think, First of all, let's notice the desperation of her faith. She had desperate faith. Woman comes to Jesus and she cries out to him, my daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. We don't know how old this daughter is. 
We don't know how this demon possession manifested itself in her. He come, she comes, though, she's so desperate, she comes to the Jewish miracle worker. Now, if the Jews had a tendency to call non-Jews dogs, you can imagine that the non-Jews would not be uh, inclined to the Jews either. There's no love lost between these people, but she's so desperate, she comes to the Jewish miracle worker. Have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me. Help me. Help me, Lord. Son of David. She cries out and she falls on her knees. It's an act of worship. Look how desperate she is. She's so desperate. She, she doesn't have any shame about it. Help me, Lord. Help me. You can't be hard-hearted toward this woman. You're not supposed to be hard-hearted toward this woman. I know this is not the main point of this passage, but think about this, this praying mother. Do you pray for your son, sons or pray for your daughters this way? These, the words that come out of your mouth, Lord, help me. Have mercy, Lord. J.C. Ryle wrote this about the, the parallel passage in Mark 7. Look what he says. The woman who came to our Lord in the history now before us must doubtless have been in deep affliction. She saw a beloved child possessed by an unclean spirit. She saw her in a condition in which no teaching could reach the mind and no medicine could heal the body, a condition only one degree better than death itself. She hears of Jesus and beseeches him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She prays for one who could not pray for herself and never rests until her prayer is granted. By prayer, she obtains the cure which no human means could obtain. Through the prayer of the mother, the daughter is healed. On her own behalf, that daughter did not speak a word, but her mother spoke for her to the Lord and did not speak in vain. Now notice this sentence. Hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother and where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. So she comes to Jesus and she's just desperate. Lord, help. And she encounters this obstacle. Here's a theme that arises in the gospel, obstacles to faith. And now we're going to talk not about her des uh, desperate faith, but secondly, notice her persevering faith. Her persevering faith. Alistair Roberts points this out in the gospels. In the gospel accounts, when there's healing, often that happens, there are almost uh, several times, there are obstacles that the people need to overcome in their faith. Faith that overcomes obstacles is one of the themes of the gospels. Just think about the four men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus one day. They carried him in a blanket, right? Brought him to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to heal him. But Jesus is in a house and the house is filled with people and there's people outside. They can't get to Jesus. So what are they going to do? Go home? No. They're going to climb up on the house and dig through the roof and drop Jesus, uh, drop the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus so that Jesus can heal him. And everybody goes home happy except that homeowner. <laughs> Obstacles. Obstacles. There's the Jewish religious leader. His name is Jairus, the other gospels tell us, who came to Jesus one day because his daughter was sick, very, very sick. And while he was talking to Jesus, even in that moment, his daughter died. There's the setback. Significant setback, right? 
Now here in this passage, it's Jesus himself who is the obstacle. Does that bother you? It's Jesus himself who says, no, I can't do that. It's an obstacle that he puts down that is intentionally a call for her to believe. He sets down this barrier and asks her by setting it down to believe, to have the sort of faith that overcomes this obstacle. I'm sure that everybody in this room has seen or heard that sort of carnival game, that carnival game where you have a big hammer and it's a strength of your test, uh, test of your strength. You're supposed to take the hammer and pound it down on the pad and then it sends a, a, a little piece of metal up to, to ring the bell. Um, if, this is a, what a, a, an old bank, I think a, a, a children's bank. It's 100 years old that was made uh, like that carnival game. If you're ever nearby one in a carnival, you, can, you know what that sounds like. Thump, ding, thump, ding. Assuming it's someone who looks less like Larry Horgan than I who's doing it, right? Thump, ding. I think that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus says, no. What's going to happen to this woman? Is her faith going to make any sort of sound? Is there going to be any sort of resounding sound? You should think about how often this happens in the Bible. How often God does this to his people in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I had a thorn in the flesh and I prayed three times that God would take it away and God said, no, thump. What's going to happen? In Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and take him to the mountain that I will point, uh, show you and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Thump. What's going to happen? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, I learned that in my weakness, God's strength is made perfect. Thump. Ding, the apostle Paul. Genesis chapter 22, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he took his son and his servants and he went to the mountain that God had showed him. Thump, ding! What's going to happen to this woman? Thump, no. I suppose I'm more concerned with you at this moment than with her. What's going to happen with you? Because some of you this is your testimony this morning. God is prodding you to persevering faith. And you feel it. Thump. What's going to happen? How do you pray in those circumstances? Oh God, if you're trying to cultivate persevering faith in me, please do that work. I think about Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is short. Let me read it to you. Listen to what it says. And here, could, the, could this woman pray this way? How long, Lord? Thump. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Thump. Thump. Look on me and answer me, Lord. My God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now listen, we've heard the thump. Here's the ding in Psalm 13. But I trust 
in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Thump, ding. She answers Jesus here, the parable that he uses about children and dogs. We'll come back to her, her answer, but he responds with the third characteristic of her faith here. She has desperate faith, she has persevering faith, and now she has great faith. Here's the resounding ding from this passage. Jesus says, woman, verse 28, you have great faith. It is required for you to come to the Lord Jesus. It is a requirement for you to come to the Lord Jesus to believe that he is willing and able to save. You must have obstacle overcoming faith, overcoming trust in him to come to the Lord Jesus. You have great faith. It's interesting, Jesus had something, said something very similar to another Gentile, another non-Jew in the book of Matthew. Earlier in Matthew, in chapter 8, there was a man who came to Jesus uh, because not, he had a, not because he had a sick child, but because he had a sick servant. And he came to Jesus and there was a discussion about Jesus' ability to heal from a distance. And, G and the, the man said, oh, I believe you can do it. And Jesus, when he heard it, he said to him, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus only says this to Gentiles in Matthew, great faith. Now I want to think for a minute about what she believed, the content of her faith. What did she believe about Jesus? In order to do that, we need to return to his mission. And I want to think again about his mission. We already talked about the mission of Jesus, that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That's true. But now notice in this passage, Jesus' mission is broad enough for the whole world. It's broad enough for the whole world. Verse 26. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, even, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Notice she didn't argue with him. She did not say, how dare you call me a dog? She didn't do that. And she didn't, she didn't contend with him about his views of election. You know, I've always thought about that thing about election and sovereignty and you choosing Israel. I always thought that wasn't fair and now I'm not being treated fairly. She doesn't do that. Actually, she, she acknowledges the truth of what Jesus says. Yes, Lord, that, that's true. I, I don't deserve your help. I have no leg to stand on. I have no claim to you. But, but, she says, you are so generous that even the crumbs from the table are enough for me. I don't deserve bread. I don't deserve a seat at the table. But you're so generous that all I want is crumbs and the crumbs from your table will be enough. And Jesus says, you have great faith. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is here to tell us that Jesus brings more than crumbs. In fact, this is the plan from the beginning. Jesus has bread enough for all. Uh, he came for the lost sheep of Israel, that's true, but he came for lost people like you too. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm choosing you. Why does God pick Abraham? The text tells us in Genesis 12, God chose Abraham so that through Abraham he might bless the whole world. 
There's a, an account of, of Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings chapter 17. There was a famine in the land in 1 Kings chapter 17. And in verse 9, God tells Elijah what to do. Go at once to Zarephath. You know where Zarephath is? It's in the region of Sidon. Same place. God says Elijah. God sends Elijah to the same place where Jesus is here in this passage. And look what he says. Go to Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So we have an account in 1 Kings chapter 17 of a prophet of God going to this region, meeting there a widow, and he, through miracles, provides her with enough bread so that all she and, and the prophet and the, uh, and the woman's son can survive. And when the woman's son gets sick and dies, the prophet raises her from the dead. And now here's the story of Jesus going to this same region and talking to a, uh, a broken woman with a hurting daughter. And the subject they discuss is bread. Jesus brings bread. He's got enough bread for all. The woman wants crumbs. Jesus says, I've got bread for everyone. It's evident because in the next scene, right after this scene, this conversation with the woman, Jesus goes and he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children and they all eat and are satisfied. Jesus has enough bread for all. This story, this account here, there's a lot of similarities between this account and the account that happens before of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, the, the compassion, the miracles, uh, the disciples and their doubts. There's a lot of similarities. There's some differences. And the differences are such that make many scholars think that Jesus does this miracle in a Gentile area. After he has a conversation with a Gentile woman about whether or not there's enough crumbs for someone like her, Jesus goes and feeds 4,000 men and plus women and children with a lot of bread, a lot of bread. Jesus has a lot of bread, enough bread for all. His mission is that great, that vast. Now, we think about the 12 loaves, the seven loaves. There's seven loaves left over this time. Before there were 12 loaves. At the time, we were thinking 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. Why, if there's, if there's significance to the number 12 before, why seven this time? It took God seven days to make the world, and his mission is as big as the world? Hmm. The woman asks for crumbs. Jesus brings enough bread for all. And, and, and she's going to be more than just in God's house, more than just like a dog eating crumbs under the table. We know that because of what Jesus has already said in Matthew 8. Remember that Roman, the only other person that Jesus credits with great faith in the gospel of Matthew? Jesus said something else after the conversation. If you read Matthew 8, you already know what Jesus is going to do in Matthew 15. But look what he says in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you, Jesus says, that many will come from the east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You're not, dear woman, going to be a dog at Jesus' table. There is a place at the table for you. You can come. You can come. All who believe can come, not because you're worthy, not because you have a claim on Jesus. You can come not because of how worthy you are, but because of how worthy he is. He came for the lost sheep of Israel and his love, his work is broad enough for the whole world. John the Baptist says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He satisfied God's wrath on the cross so that the Apostle John could say he's the propitiation, he's the atoning sacrifice, not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. He satisfied God's wrath. You can come. You can come. We sang it a little bit before, uh, a few minutes ago, a song about a feast, right? How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, the feast of Jesus' generosity. Each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin. Pity the nations, O God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. The Lord Jesus has enough bread, bread enough for all. Next week, Jiten and Rebecca Singh are going to be here because we believe that Jesus has enough bread, not just for Canaanite women, not just for crowds of Gentiles on a hillside in Palestine, not just for all of the residents of Lancaster County, but we think we have, he has enough bread for 1.2 billion people who live in India. All hail the Lord Jesus Christ. Hail the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the son of David, the savior of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And someday he'll come back to call us to himself because he is worthy. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for the generosity of the Lord Jesus. We come in his name and through him because he is worthy. We, we cannot come on our own. We have no claim. But we come by faith in him to you. Lord, this morning we think about those in our fellowship that we love dearly who are struggling like this woman and who feel this thump of your no, the thump of troubles, obstacles. And I do pray that you might cultivate in these dear friends persevering faith that, that recognizes that you are willing and able to save. Help us to encourage one another in this, to sing songs of the Lord Jesus that would Encourage us all to trust in him, to persevere. Lord, we pray with the Apostle John that you would come quickly, that you would return and gather your people together, that we might rejoice before your throne as we will for eternity in your sufficient love, rescuing people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. You can't come soon enough, Lord. So come quickly, we pray. 
Help us to wait by faith. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus together, saying, Amen.